Welcome to Ottawa Valley Vineyard, where we simply want to help you encounter Jesus, be transformed, and share his love. Uh, what we're going to look at, of course, is the story of the resurrection, being that this is Easter Sunday. Um, and we're going to sort of grapple with um, Peter's story and where he sort of fits into it. Uh, Peter is a character that, as I was doing all of the prep through Lent stuff, uh, was just kept grabbing my attention. Uh, I think it was probably a series on on his life for us to do in the future. But he has this incredible trajectory of having these crazy expectations about Jesus and who he was supposed to be, going through doubt and denial, uh, the curiosity of him running to the tomb to try to figure out what this resurrection thing was about, uh, discovering that Jesus was alive, and then living this incredible life of fearless joy, which is, of course, the life that we want to live. Um, and so it's it's worth grappling with it. And it's especially important, I think, for us as people to grapple uh, with the resurrection. Um, I, I found myself as I was preparing just asking this question, do I really get the significance of the resurrection? Like, do I really get it? Because it feels like I'm uh, not running the race as as though I'm really excited about the hope that comes with it, right? There's an incredible hope uh, that somehow the early church figured out that because Jesus was going to be raised from the gra- grave, because he was raised from the grave, then they were going to be raised. Uh, so death wasn't something that they feared. Do I live a life that is truly uh, free of fear from de- fear of death? And so that's just a huge question for us. Um, am I running? Am I excited? Am I telling people about it? Am I living as though it's reality? Uh, the reality is, is that I don't like to run at all. I like life to be pretty chill. Um, I like, I don't like it when people are freaking out all the time. I'm, I, I like, I like things to just be calm, cool and collected. And, uh, um, you know, I remember one time, and this is, if you've been with us for a while, you've heard this story, but, um, I remember it was early when Anna and I were engaged or maybe when we were married. It was either before we were married or after we were married. So that puts it in the span of my whole life. Uh, honey, uh, I, may, I should just stop talking now. Um, yeah. So some point in our relationship, that thing happened. Uh, we were driving uh, down this back road and uh, it was June, I guess, or maybe it's May. Do June bugs come in May or June bugs come in June? Anyway, this June bug comes and gets in the car with us while we're driving my old green ball of station wagon. And this thing is like buzzing about, flying about. It's like in your hair and it's flapping in your head and you were freaking out. My wife was just flipping out. Um, and uh, and uh, my response to all of this was, of course, to very slowly, very calmly pull the car over and begin to deal with the situation because I'm compensating for freak out with being calm. And uh, and Anna, at this point, she's like, like would you even run uh, to save me if the house was on fire? Like if I'm dangling from a cliff by my fingernails, would you like run to help me? Like what's going on here? And I realized that I, there's something in me that doesn't like to respond to urgency, but there's something about the story of the resurrection that that is urgent, that uh, calls us to run, calls us to move. So we're just going to read the story from Luke and we're going to pull in some pieces from Matthew's gospel and a well from as well from John's gospel. Well, let's just read it in the book of Luke. Let's pray before we read the scriptures. Um, Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for speaking uh, to us through it. Thank you that these words change our lives, that there's so much wisdom and depth in them, that we just want to uh, respond. We want to have open hearts. So would you come and speak to us? Come and change us. Come and make us new, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Luke 24, verses 1 to 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb 
and taking the spices they had prepared. And this is the ladies. Um, this is Mary, and we'll, we'll see that later. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the man said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not there, but he has risen. He has risen indeed. Uh, remember how he told you while he was in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb. They told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Johanna... Uh, and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them as an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. And so we're going to just look at the story of Peter, this uh, guy who uh, was a close companion of Jesus. He was a friend of Jesus. He was in the middle of all the stuff that Jesus was doing. And he has this incredible trajectory of going from being this sort of zealot, fisherman, politically active, crazy, intense guy, to ultimately becoming somebody who is a solid rock that the church could be founded on, that could actually lead the church in Jerusalem uh, through a good part of the first uh, century uh, after the passing of Christ. We want to just notice some of this stuff about the resurrection, and we'll see how Peter interacts with it in a bit. But let's just start right at the first verse, and this is sort of what we do when we, we preach and teach at OVV a lot of the times. We'll just take the scriptures... And we'll just begin to uh, unpack them verse by verse. So here we are. On the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. Now, these are um, spices that are like myrrh is one of the ones. Like, remember the spices that the uh, uh, wise men brought um, to Jerusalem to see the baby Jesus. One of them was myrrh. Um, it's just an important spice in preserving things back in that time. And the ladies came uh, with the spices because what had happened was Jesus had been buried. He'd been uh, laid in the grave, but laid on Friday, knowing that the Sabbath was coming. And they basically didn't have time to finish the job before uh, the first star came out on, on the Friday night and it was Sabbath time. So they sort of quickly uh, wrapped him a little bit and said they laid a cloth on his face in another text. And they just sort of closed up the tomb and left. But the women were coming back to sort of finish the job and to uh, and to just care a little bit more for Jesus' uh, body. Uh, one of the things that's interesting in all that, of course, is their expectations. Um, we see earlier in the story in John 12 uh, that one of the women who was uh, falling in love with Jesus, I don't mean that in a romantic way, but realizing that he was an amazing savior, person came into his presence while everybody was there. She fell on her knees. She broke open an expensive bottle of perfume and began to wash his feet uh, with her hair. And she was criticized for that. And the way that Jesus addressed that criticism was said, hey, she's given a precious gift that was intended as a gift for the day of my burial. So he's forecasting the fact that he is going to die. And so she had already broken that clearly, but somehow they had gathered more spices. The spices were worth like about a, a year's wage, but they knew that they had time to collect some more. They knew that they were preparing ultimately for what he had prophesied, his burial. And so their expectation coming into the situation is that uh, he's going to be dead. Now that is uh, an expectation, I think, that we wrestle with a lot. We sometimes as people, maybe if you're a, a new person investigating Christianity, you're imagining that Jesus is somebody historical who died. Uh, 
uh, a long time ago in the past, or even as as Christians, we sort of live with this understanding that our faith is historical, but we forget that we can have a living interaction with him uh, here and now. We, we forget that he's alive and we forget how very much alive he is. So we come into the situations that we're in. We come into life with the expectation that we're on our own. We've got to face it by ourselves. We've got to figure this thing out, uh, that we're grappling with it by ourselves. And uh, we want to have a different expectation that God can be up to something different. Peter had a unique set of expectations uh, coming into the story. And we see so many encounters with Jesus throughout uh, uh, the Jesus ministry and him knowing Peter. You know, Peter saying, let me walk on the water. Uh, Peter starts walking on the water. Amazing but sinks. Uh, which one of us will be the greatest in Matthew 18? They're arguing about who's going to sit sort of at the right hand of Jesus and going to rule with him. They're expecting political leadership and they're expecting to have positions of office. That was one of Peter's expectations. Uh, you shall never wash my feet, he's saying in John. So it's a foot washing ceremony and Peter's like, Jesus, you're dignified. Uh, I want my faith to be all about dignity and respect and all of that. And so I uh, know you're never going to wash my feet. Uh, I'm going to serve you. And of course, Jesus has to wash his feet or, or can have nothing to do with Peter. And we see that Peter needs to learn this about being a servant. Um, Lord, I will never deny you. Like, I'll never deny you, God. I will I will proclaim your name till the end of time. And like 10 minutes later, uh, Peter is denying Jesus that he'd ever seen him, ever known him. And he's running and fleeing. And the rooster is crowing after he's done this three times. And then Peter's like, I'd rather chop off someone's ear than see you arrested. I will use my strength and my might uh, to see that this political thing that I've been hoping for would be a reality. And so I'm just going to pull out a sword and, and do violence on your behalf. He has this expectation that that's what's necessary. And in the end, here we are, Jesus has died, he's been crucified, he's been put in the tomb, and uh, Peter is gathered with the disciples. His Messiah is dead. Nobody expected a Messiah to come back. When your Messiah died, you go get a new Messiah. You don't go looking for the old one. So Peter is sort of part of the, the group that's sort of waiting in a room or a house somewhere, and the ladies go off to take care of the body. So he's got no expectation that anything is going to happen. But meanwhile back at the tomb, and we're jumping to Matthew uh, chapter 28 here, uh, we see that God has a completely different plan, and he's unfolding things in a different way. So an angel of the Lord descends from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. And I just couldn't pass up the opportunity to just note the crazy supernatural stuff that sort of happens in this story around the resurrection of Jesus. So we've got these angels that are interacting with the story and they're coming and moving and shaking and making things happen. So while Peter is waiting and expecting nothing, uh, the angels are doing their job. And I can kind of imagine, like at the time, like they set some guards around the tomb. We see that in the story. They were there to guard people, to keep them from coming and messing with the tomb or stealing the body or whatever it was. And so you have these live guards uh, who are guarding a dead guy. And the angels come, and all of a sudden you have two guards who are like dead guys, and the live guy's gone. So you got this crazy uh, role reversal exchange, but I kind of imagine the angels, like, like, what are the angels like? Every time you see angels appear in the scriptures, they're like making people freak out. People are afraid and, and losing it, like losing it, like falling on their faces like the ladies did later. I kind of imagine the angels kind of up in heaven, like, okay, we're going to reveal ourselves. We got to come whenever we're talking to someone we like, we got to come, we got to come super quiet. We got to like, like hold ourselves nice and still use a small voice. Cause they're going to freak out. But this time we want those guards to pass out. So dude, like just full glory, <laughs> like just come stand on the roof uh, of the tomb and, and just bring it. And so the angels are like, bah, 
they pop out and it's like the guards like wipe out and fall on their faces and are like dead men stricken dead like just pass out from the overwhelming sense of power and glory from these angels coming and we just need to think about it like that like god is doing amazing things behind the scene peter is unaware of all this you need to know that behind the scenes, uh, God is moving things in the world uh, for the good of the church, for the good of his people. Uh, we don't understand it. We don't see it. Our expectations are low, but God is doing amazing things. We can be expecting one thing and God can be up to something completely different. And that should just encourage us. God is moving in ways that you can't see in your life, even if you're in a difficult spot, a difficult moment. Another thing to note here, uh, think about the stone and why it was rolled away. And I sort of imagine the angel stood on the stone and rolled it away. So he kind of did the little shuffle thing like a log rolling competition or something like that. But he rolls the stone away. Um, wasn't to let Jesus out. We see like in John 20, Jesus is like teleporting into the room where the disciples are. He didn't need to be, uh, you know, sort of have the stone broken away so that he could push his way out. Uh, he had the power to do that on his own. What what was the moving of the stone all about? I think the reality is, is that the stone was rolled away to let investigators in, to let people know that, you know, something supernatural has happened here and you ought to look a little deeper into it. And I just want to say that really clearly, that the story of the resurrection is something that is meant to be investigated. It's something that's meant to be Lord. It's an open story. Like God supernaturally broke open that tomb uh, so that it would be supernaturally broken over. So something weird and strange would have happened that would cause you to look deeper. And I want to encourage you to look deeper into the reality of this and to investigate uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, Timothy Keller says this, he says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the grave. And I just think it's so true. And a lot of other people have said similar things. Like we absolutely have to grapple with the fact that uh, in history, a whole pile of people, not just a group of 12 disciples, but all of their friends and people all over uh, the known, uh, the sort of the world of, of Israel had these experiences with Jesus after he was supposed to be dead. And they went out uh, and introducing themselves as eyewitnesses, proclaiming the story and telling it to their friends. And the story spread. Now, they were persecuted for this story. They were whipped and chained and, and, and beaten and imprisoned and fed to lions. And if they'd made it up, like, why would they endure such suffering, having made up this story? Like, what was the advantage to them? It was only earning them pain. The reason that they uh, held to the story was because it was true. It's one of the great evidences for the reality of the resurrection is the suffering the church endured to tell the story. And we just have to grapple with that and look at it historically. What is the probability that these people endured all of this for something they'd made up? Very low probability, indeed. Um, so we have to grapple with that, the reality of what Jesus did. John 20, we're jumping into this text now. And again, it's really cool to just sort of 
look at the piece that Luke brings to the story and look at the piece that Matthew brings to the story and look at the piece that John brings to the story. So when we look at the scriptures, people often look at those things and say, hey, there's a little conflict. This person tells it this way. This person tells it this way. Did this happen in different ways? But when you weave the stories together, you see that they fit together as a cohesive whole and that the people reading them and telling the stories just told the part that they felt like their particular audience wanted to hear and needed to hear. And somebody else wrote this story for somebody else, a different audience. And so we as an audience, 2,000 years later, can take these just like video clips and clip them together and make it into one cohesive story. And it's really cool to just look at it that way. So it says this in verse 2. This is back to the women now. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. It says, while they were perplexed about this, and I just want us to pause on that thought for a while. Uh, the resurrection is supposed to be perplexing. It's supposed to be something that makes us scratch our heads and go like, what is this all about? Like, what does this really mean? Uh, and, and ask the question like I asked earlier, uh, if this was such an earth shattering event for the disciples, is it an earth shattering event for me? Like even mature people, mature believers, like I've heard people say, oh man, it's the Easter story. I've heard it a thousand times. I'm not learning anything new. Like let's go to part of the Bible I haven't read before. Like holy smokes, man. I have done this message, you know, every year of my ministry and I have never gotten bored. Like there is so much treasure and so much wealth in this book that even if you're mature in your faith, even if you know these stories, you have to approach the word with a teachability, with a sense that, hey, there's something to investigate here. And if you're looking at Christianity from the outside in, you need to say, hey, this is just like, we have the outline of the story here, and I sort of know what happened. Jesus was alive, and then Christians claim that he rose. Okay, crazy story. I'm going to just write that off. No, man, you got to dig into it and, and wrestle with it and see that there is something in there. Like it should be perplexing to you that the God who created the universe entered into it, died, claiming to die for our sins, and then rose and conquered death and, and lived again and ultimately ascended to be at the right hand of the Father. Like why did all that happen? There's so many mysteries. So I encourage you to be perplexed by the resurrection and to let questioning and doubt and wrestling uh, be a part of you. Let that drive you to seek and let that drive you to look deeper into these incredible mysteries. So it goes on. Um, the, the, the women, of course, are, are there. Now there's two angels in the scene. Uh, they stood by them in dazzling apparel. I want us to notice the apparel of the angels. Every time we see them, they're in dazzling apparel. In the scriptures, they're in blazing white. I just want us to call uh, attention to the idea of purity, that there's something about purity that is meant to break into us. Now, that's something that's just a concept that we hardly even think about in our time anymore. But I want us to recognize that God and a part of his mission on the earth is to bring clarity and purity uh, to us, something for us to wrestle with. And as they were frightened, they bowed their faces to the ground. And I just think it's worth us recognizing that when we start with that sense of perplexity, we start with wondering. And in those moments when God brings clarity, that idea of clarity, I think, can sometimes bring um, a lot of fear to us. Uh, Plato, in his uh, famous analogy of the cave, he's describing um, a world in which uh, a person is seated in a chair uh, in a cave. Uh, the opening to the cave is back behind him. 
Um, he's seeing his shadow on the wall and the shadows of other things moving across the mouth of the cave on the wall. So everything is like a shadow of reality. It's not really real, but it's all the reality that he has known. And he's chained to his chair and he's looking at the back of the cave and all he can see is this sort of shadow reality. But somebody comes down the steps into the cave and begins to sort of try to untie his chains and begin to try to lead him up into the light, into seeing reality. And, and what happens in Plato's analogy is that that person begins to fight against the person who's taking him into the light because the reality of the goodness uh, that is going on, the reality of what is happening um, is like shocking. It's, it's almost painful. It can actually almost hurt um, that sense of there's a new reality here that ruins my paradigm, that breaks down my, um, my comfortable way of living, my comfortable way of being. There's something uh, messed up here. There's something that hurts me. There's something that's harsh. And uh, so I want us to just grapple with that, that if you are being uh, encountering, uh, connecting with the reality of God in a new way in your life, don't be repelled by that sense of strangeness. Don't be repelled by that sense of pain. You really want to dig into it and, and wrestle with it and receive the thing that's on the other side of it. Uh, that person ultimately marches up the cave and sees the light and sees reality in Plato's analogy. And ultimately, he becomes one who is wanting to rescue others who are in the cave. And I think that's going to be the truth for you as well. Um, you need to wrestle through the pain. You need to wrestle through the awkwardness, the fright um, that, that fear sort of induces in you as you discover clarity around what's going on with Jesus. It says this, why do you seek the living among the dead? And the reality is, is that we often get caught in the trap of seeking life among dead things. We often get caught seeking for a good things in material, in uh, food, in uh, substances, um, things that are actually bringing us death, things that are actually hurting us, we end up looking for life in them. And the angels are just sort of pointing uh, to these women and saying, hey, I want to break your paradigm. Uh, the life that you're looking for just isn't in this place. And we need to be able to wrestle through as Christians, as believers, uh, the idea that we don't have all that God has to offer for us. And we need to be jolted sometimes uh, out of uh, our habits, our ways of looking for life among dead things. It's the challenge to us. So anyway, the women are returning, uh, Mary Magdalene and Johanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other women. And we just need to just pause for a second here and appreciate the voices of the women in the story. In the time of uh, Jesus, um, women would not have been respected as voices, respected as witnesses. Their voices couldn't even be heard in court. Uh, they were, uh, it's a totally different world than the world that we're living in. And so it wouldn't have been to the disciples to advantage if they were making up this crazy story to uh, bring women into it as testimonies testifying as witnesses to the story of the resurrection. But the reality is, is that they did because that's what actually happened. And so they wanted to be truth tellers. They wanted to uh, reveal the stories that had happened to them. So they could have taken that piece out. They could have edited that piece from history, but they left the women in the story uh, because that's simply what happened. So we want to just recognize that the fact that the women are there, if anybody had been making up the story, they just would have cut them from the film. Um, 
the reality is, is that women have an important and powerful voice in testifying uh, to the beautiful works of Jesus. Uh, they did then, they do now. And just to say a statement for me as a pastor, a male pastor, sort of speaking with the mic here, we need women in our story. And you look all around the world, if you look in South America and China, even if you look at the underground church in Iran, what you see happening is that it's actually women who are driving the church forward in an incredibly powerful way. So if you're a woman and you're listening to this and you're wondering what the importance of your voice is, you need to know that Jesus values your voice and that he wants you to be a testimony. He wants you to be a witness for him. Um, the disciples, of course, they initially had a funny reaction uh, to the voice of women. Um, it says this, says, in these words, these words seemed to them like an idle tale and they did not believe them. So even the disciples who knew these women well and, and trusted them presumably heard them coming back and telling the story about the angels and uh, Jesus not being in the tomb and the grave clothes and the whole deal. And they said, this seems like an idle tale. And if you unpack that word in the Greek, it means it seems like silly talk, right? Like, just, you're just, just women, just talking silly. Like, and then of course my wife loves that when I would just say something like that. I would say, honey, you're just talking silly. Like, what do you, you know? And so, so I can just imagine the women like, like, come on, man. Like we saw it real deal. Can't imagine what the women were feeling in that moment. Uh, but then this word, um, they did not believe them. It's just, it's not just that the evidence didn't convince them. It's not just that what the women had said uh, didn't seem like truth for them. It didn't line up to them. It wasn't just that intellectual piece. That word in the Greek is like they refused persuasion. So there's something active in their will at that moment that was saying, you know what, maybe there is something here in that story, but for certain reasons, uh, the reason that I don't want to be uh, wrestling with this is that um, I don't want to have to change my worldview, so I'm going to decide not to believe. I'm going to decide not to pay attention. And we need to be honest about our will, our desires, our choices. As God is calling you into something new and wanting to grow you, uh, we need to wrestle with the fact that uh, sometimes what's really in conflict here isn't the evidence. It's our will. And I've had encounters with so many people over the years like talking about uh, Christianity, uh, talking about faith. And I think we can present the evidence for the resurrection, pre present the evidence for Jesus in a really good way, an intellectual way, but it really takes the power of the Holy Spirit to break through human will, because very often that's what the resistance is. It's not just the evidence, it's, I don't want to believe this. And so I just want to encourage you in yourself, uh, be honest with yourself about um, your will in the equation. And if it's your communication with others, prayer required to uh, really connect with people and connect with people's hearts. So if you're coming to a place of wrestling with faith, you need to decide how much of that resistance is actually internal and how much of it is based on evidence. It's so important to just be honest about that. So now we're getting back into the story of Peter. Remember, God has prepared all of this. Peter has just been hanging out with the ladies. They've come and told him a crazy story. Um, sort of waiting for something to happen. His Messiah died. Is he like going to go shopping for a new one? We don't know how this goes. Uh, but it says, when the women spoke, uh, while all the other disciples sort of doubted, Peter rose. And that word rose is like he sprang up and ran to the tomb. And that word raced is a, is a racing word that we see when talking about early Olympics, talking about uh, athletic events. Uh, he literally got up and raced and began running to the tomb. I just want to put that out to us. So we want to be people that are running to Jesus. We want to be people that are running to him and what he has for us. We want to connect with him. Um, but then we jump over to the story in John again, and we see that John is going to bring us a, a little fun detail in the story. 
He says this. He says, the other disciple outran Peter. So Peter jumped up, left, and started running for the tomb. This is John now writing, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Just by the way, I want you all to know that uh, Peter left first, but I outran him. I want you to all know I'm faster than Peter. Um, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. So just imagine that. They're sitting in the same room. The women come in. Some of them don't believe him. Peter's like, what? And he jumps up and he runs out. And John's like, well, I guess I'll go too, and runs after him. But it's a foot race between these two guys who are competing earlier in the story about who's going to be the greatest. And John is still like, I outran him. I just thought I should put that in the eternal record of scripture just so that everybody knows I am faster uh, than, than Peter. Just wanted to make that clear. Uh, so he outruns him, but he stops at the, at the door to the tomb and he's sort of peering inside and he's looking inside and you can imagine it bright sun outside and he's looking in the door. It's kind of dark. It's like, I wonder what's going on here. Um, the guards are probably still passed out beside the tomb. We don't know. Um, but then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. I just want to bring that to our attention is that, uh, your curiosity and teachability will take you farther than your ability every time. Uh, that was the beautiful thing in Peter. Like he wanted to know, he had to know. So he might've been slower getting there. He might've been like me, like I am not a fast racer. I am like long back, short legs. Um, and, uh, and like, I am not a dude that is made for running. Give me a shot put in high school or a javelin or a discus. And I can throw that thing pretty far. Uh, but when it came to running, like I was terrible. In fact, when I was a little kid, my friends would always race. We'd play soccer and there'd be always like, I remember the worst moment ever was the church picnic. Uh, cause there was always the foot race, always the hundred yard dash. We call it whoever did the hundred yard dash. And I hated that thing because my grandpa was super athletic and he was really excited about it. Again, some of you that have been with me for a while. I've heard, heard me tell this story, but I remember in my little mind, like seven years old, eight years old, I remember watching my parents watch like the $6 million man. And I had a very active imagination, you know, in that old show, uh, the way that they demonstrated that the $6 million man was running fast was for him to be running in slow motion. You remember? And that was how they represented on film that he was running really fast. And so in my creative, imaginative mind with my grandfather cheering me on, I ran slow mo to the finish line while my friends all like burned it past me. And it was like huge, like so embarrassing. It was, it was brutal, but somehow I stuck with my story and uh, I finished the whole race in slow-mo while everybody was waiting, like just brutal. Uh, but that's where I was highly imaginative kid, like not at all connected with reality. Um, but that's just sort of like Peter, like he's running slow-mo while everybody's going past him, but he's got a curiosity that drove him into the tomb to actually find out what was going on. And so he saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, uh, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Now, why is that detail in there? Like, why is that a part of the story? Remember, John is writing this now. He's talking about what Peter saw when he looked in. Um, and we look a little bit earlier in John chapter 19. It says, they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths. And we know that they were in a hurry. We know that it was uh, the end of... Um, the Sabbath. And so it says that they just put a linen cloth over him. Well, we, what's clear from the story and sort of the way the pronouns line up as you, if you read from John 19 to John 20 is that it was actually Peter and John that were likely the ones who were there was Joseph of Arimathea who wrapped Jesus up in the first place. And the women were to come later and to finish the job. And so you just imagine a Peter having carried Jesus 
to the tomb after the soldiers had cut him down or whatever. And Joseph collects him and they just sort of in the dark, in the dead of night, they kind of sneaky take him away to the tomb and, and begin to deal with the situation. And so it says this, uh, he saw the cloth lying there and the cloth which had been on Jesus' head, the cloth that he had seen on Jesus' head, or maybe the cloth that he had placed on Jesus' head. And we realize that what we're seeing here is, is an account of an eyewitness. Peter went in to see if it was the same way he had left it when he was there before. Uh, it's maybe a bit of an argument from silence, but it seems pretty likely from the way the pronouns line up from John 19 through to John 20, as that at the very least, John was a close witness and Peter was likely in the story as well. And so the Gospels are often pointing to these eyewitnesses, and that's just another uh, important thing for us to talk about. When you look at uh, Paul's writings and Peter's later writings and John's writings uh, throughout the New Testament canon, the books that we have there, they're often saying, hey, go talk to this person. This person saw it, and they're using names. They're pointing people to the details so that you could read the story, the letter written to uh, a church here or there, and then you could go back to Jerusalem and say, hey, that person is still alive. I could talk to them, or that person's uh, child is still alive, and I could talk to them, and I could get a closely related story. If they'd been making this thing up, they would have extracted the names from it and you wouldn't be able to investigate or interview or go and check it out. But people in the first century were close to the story enough that they could talk to their friends about it. So the Gospels are pointing often to eyewitnesses. He saw the linen cloth lying there, which had been on Jesus' head. And I just want to make, make note that we want to be eyewitnesses to the works of Jesus in the world. Like we're unpacking this historical story, but Jesus is still doing amazing things in the world. And you don't want to be on the outside looking in at what Jesus has done. You don't want to be on the outside looking in at uh, YouTube videos of people praying for the sick or, or all of that. You want to be praying for the sick yourselves. Just let Jake preach like a put Jake on in a couple weeks and he'll tell you all about it. Uh, but you want to be in the real deal. Like you want to be living in the power of the resurrection and caring for people in an amazing way. Um, so the other disciple reached the tomb first and then he went in. So this is John, the disciple that Peter loved or the disciple that Jesus loved, that Jesus cared for a, a most intimate uh, friend of Jesus. And he saw and believed so Peter went in first, but John followed him, and then he believed. You need to know that your curiosity is important, not just for you, but your curiosity is important for the people around you. The people will follow you as you follow Christ. It's significant um, that as you investigate, as you are curious, as you dig into the story, as you stick your nose, your hands, your head, your whole body into the details of the story that Jesus has for you. Um, there'll be others who'll be looking over your shoulder and what's important for you might be even more important for them. It's just not your life that matters here. So how did all of this uh, impact Peter's life? It's a crazy emotional whiplash moment for Peter, right? He has uh, been waiting uh, with his friends in Jerusalem. His Messiah has died and the women come in and he finds out that Jesus is alive. And it's an absolutely stunning, life-altering, life-changing moment for him. How does that affect his life? How did that affect our life? Well, remember earlier we talked about the uh, expectations that Peter had going into his time in the Jesus story. Remember that moment earlier? Uh, he was reinstated. 
um, and asked by Jesus to feed Jesus' sheep, forgiven deeply. He wasn't expecting that. That wasn't his expectation. But Jesus invited him back into leadership. He wasn't expecting to be filled with the Spirit in a dramatic way and to go out on the streets, speaking in tongues, proclaiming the name of the Lord to people from all nations. He didn't know he was going to be an evangelist like that. He didn't know that he was going to be called uh, to explain what God was doing and to preach a sermon where 3,000 people would be added to the church in a moment. That wasn't his expectation, but the resurrection of Jesus transformed him. He wasn't expecting to be arrested and tried and that trial to be used for him to be able to proclaim the gospel of Jesus to the authorities in Jerusalem. He wasn't expecting to be set free from prison by an angel. We see that story uh, in Acts uh, chapter 5. He wasn't expecting signs and wonders. He wasn't expecting to be the person uh, that through a dream and through interaction with Paul was to actually release the gospel in an incredibly powerful way uh, beyond uh, the borders of Jerusalem, beyond the borders of Israel, uh, to be releasing the gospel with authority to the Gentiles, to you and me, that this is not just a religion that is for people uh, of Jewish faith. This is a religion that is for all human beings on the planet. And this incredible dream that he had of, of, uh, the blanket and all of the animals and, and the Lord speaking to him and ultimately uh, giving instructions for Paul was how Paul was to bring the gospel to people in the new world. Incredible story. And ultimately later in his life, and we don't see uh, this um, in the book of Acts, but we see it later um, in some of his writings in First and Second Peter. He was a missionary and a writer to Asia Minor and ultimately to Rome. And church tradition has him ultimately ending his life. Uh, in Rome. So he lived this incredible, glorious life, running from place to place, leading, uh, bringing the gospel uh, to people, prison and arrest and difficulty and challenge, but an incredibly adventurous life. And we want to live lives of adventure and joy and purpose. You do not want to live a life sitting on your couch. You do not want to live a life sitting, remembering the Messiah who died. You have to live a life with the Messiah who lives, who is risen from the grave. There's a life for you to live that is so much more. There's a life for me to live that is so much more than I am living now. He's got an incredible purpose, but it has to start with the investigation with the dream. Now we could, we could look at so many other moments in Peter's life between now and between, or between his uh, moment of seeing the resurrection and the end. We, we glimpsed at them. There was so much to talk about in Peter's life, but I want us to take us to the last thing that Peter wrote in second Peter chapter one, 12 to 16. It says this, he says, I think it right. As long as I am in this body, Listen, he's aging at this point to stir you up by way of reminder. So he's writing to the church and saying, Hey, I want to make sure you remember all these things that you've, that I've taught. I want to stir you up. That's what I'm trying to do today. I'm trying to stir us up since I know that the putting off of my body and that word putting off his body, it's like temporarily lay aside. So it's not like throw it in the trash can. It's like taking off a shirt that you're going to put on again later. Uh, so his under his understanding of the resurrection is even in this word that, that even as he knows he's going to put off his body and dies, he knows it's ultimately going to be resurrected and wearing it again. And that is just, again, that is what Christian belief is, that we are going to die 
that we are going to have time in heaven, that we are going to be resurrected and, and reunited with the new earth, that there's an incredible life and mission and journey for us. This is his understanding. He's going to lay aside this body he was going to put back on. Uh, it will be soon. As our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, now he's looking back uh, towards his encounter with Jesus in John 21, where Jesus is having a conversation with them. And he says, they will carry you where you do not want to go. They will stretch out your hands. Uh, they will take your clothes off. He, Jesus is talking to Jesus or to uh, Peter about the kind of death by which he was about to glorify God. And at the end of this sort of description to Peter of his death, he just says, now come follow me. And so listen. There's an incredible life of adventure for you. There is going to be death at the end of it. There's going to be maybe difficulty for you. There's going to be challenge. There's going to be sorrow. But don't you want the adventure? Isn't it worth it to follow him? And he continues to write. Peter's again talking to this church. He says, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you will be able at any time to recall these things. He's wanting to relay the story of Jesus. Still, at the very end of his life, you have to know the story of Jesus and what really happened. Verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his glorious majesty. So Peter's pointing to things that really happened in space in time, in history, and he saw them. And he wants those who followed him to know, and he wants us to know that something really happened that changed the world, and it's meant to change us. Peter ran to the tomb, and he just never stopped running. He never stopped running. When you come to the empty tomb, to an understanding that you are to follow Jesus Christ, the risen Savior, it's supposed to make you run. It's supposed to make me run and never stop running. Because this story must be told. And we tell it infused with his power, infused with his life through danger and hardship and, and, hardship and struggle and, and trial. But we never stop running. This is how Peter crossed the finish line. And we see this sort of in church legend, and there's a number of different uh, writers in the early church that, that speak to this moment. But basically, uh, in Rome, under Nero, at the end of his life, Peter was crucified upside down because he felt like he was unworthy to be crucified in the manner of his Lord. I want to live a life, and I think we want to live lives that follow Jesus like that. just living to serve, living to care, living to tell the story of Jesus. Peter's life, our lives have to be a story of joyful, fearless living. Like talk about a fearless living. Please crucify me upside down. I don't want it to be the same as Jesus. Let his story be unique. Let my story be lesser. Imagine the joy that drives you to be able to say a thing like that in the moment where they're about to pound nails through your hands as you followed Christ. So that's the call. That's the journey. That's the joy that's meant to get us up in the morning. That's the joy that's meant to keep us running. He loves us and he has amazing lives for us to live. He has an amazing life for you to live. But you have to accept it. You have to be curious. You have to dig into the mystery 
And then when you come to the truth, you come to the reality, you come to a realization that a mind-altering, paradigm-shattering thing has happened and that Jesus has risen from the grave. You let your life be changed and you just start running. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of Ottawa Valley Vineyard, visit ovv.ca.